Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 28 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have the author of the Strength and Conditioning Handbook for Combat Sports, Jeffrey Chu. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm good, Todd. Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. Um, so most of this conversation is going to center around your uh, latest book, which I absolutely loved. Uh, but before we dive into that, okay. uh, why do you do what you do? I do what I do because I've had a love for martial arts since I was a kid. Um, I started martial arts at the age of five. Um, and then after high school, throughout university, I got really into the role of what an SNC coach does. I like the developmental part of an athlete. I like the performance side of things. And then it was just natural for me to merge those two sides. So I started working with a lot more combat sports, SNC um, a- athletes. I've worked with some strength athletes as well. So I'm merging my backgrounds together. I like that a lot. And in terms of, I mean, philosophy is something that's banded about in uh, mm-hmm. gender conditioning and um, it's certainly nice for example, uh, to have a sound bite or a, something that could fill a 140 character tweet. But what what is your philosophy when it comes to strength and conditioning? And out of interest, does that philosophy change when you're specifically working with a combat sport athlete? My philosophy when it comes to SNC for athletes really revolves around pragmatic methods. Um, if it like. Sh- how do you say it is? If it works, it works, right? I'm going to choose the most impactful methods I can. Um, I, I'm always asking myself, how do I make the most impact? How do I create the most results with the time we have? Uh, does it change with combat athletes? Kind of, because there are some things in combat sports where you don't see in other sports. Like you normally have a shorter career, you accumulate more mental and physical damage like concussions uh, injuries and whatnot so i think it's really important to take it serious when it comes to snc keeping fighters healthy making sure their training's not going to waste making sure everything's aligned so they can perform and they could feed their families make enough money yeah and as you said considering their lives outside of just fighting and obviously the context of a short career might to a certain extent, dictate how you weigh up risk and reward. So that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, in your book, one of the chapters you speak about uh, needs analysis, which uh, to SNC coaches might be something they're fairly familiar with. But if we've got any listeners who, for example, are just combat athletes themselves, uh, how do you go about uh, understanding the needs of different combat sports? I think the first step is to understand what is the primary goal of the combat sport. Is it grappling base? Is it striking base? Are we trying to knock our opponent out unconscious? Are we trying to dominate positions and end the match via submission? I think that's number one. Uh, Number two is what are the physical demands seen in the sport? So is it mainly high velocity ballistic movements? Is it slower velocity grinding movements? How much pushing and pulling is there? How much striking is involved? So those are the physical demands. And then next would be, what are the cognitive demands? What is the range of movement sets? How much variation is there? Uh, How much information is the athlete taking in? 
obviously it's quite high across all the combat sports like in bjj you have plenty like plenty of positions to understand and memorize in boxing everything happens within split seconds so like everything from footwork to head positioning that all matters towards the outcome of the match um and then as an snc coach what you're trying to do with the needs analysis is trying to figure out first what they need in order to succeed in training, right? Uh, how much volume are they putting in? Uh, what does that mean on the SNC coaches end? Like, do we have to improve the certain health of, or the health of certain joints so they can train better? And then we can move on to things like, what are the competitive needs? What are the conditioning needs? How long are the rounds? How long are the rest? What kind of gas tank or what kind of conditioning do we need to build for them to be successful? All right, so you're taking into account all those factors when you're doing a needs analysis. And if we take it one step further, so I'm just, uh, I've just got your ebook up in front of me. So, for example, mm-hmm. you mentioned movement variability there. You mentioned the uh, grinding demands. Um, yep. Before I ask the next question, could you just give uh, the listeners an example of what you mean by, for example, grinding demands or ballistic demands? Grinding demands are muscle movements that have an emphasized um, concentric and eccentric phase. Maybe you're pulling your opponent's neck into you. Um, You're manipulating the position of an opponent. Ballistic demands are ballistic movements, which means mostly concentric. Let's say you're firing a punch and then you're bringing it back. So there's not a lot of tension, muscle tension involved. Perfect. And, we were talking off air about how uh, the traditional presentation of, for example, a program mm-hmm. uh, can almost be a bit of a misnomer when you're working with combat sports. So for example, uh, we mentioned how the textbook example would say you'll test an athlete and then in four to eight weeks or whatever it is, you'll retest an athlete. But in reality, combat sports don't quite work that smoothly. Um, so on the subject of things that don't, way up as uh, smooth as they do in the textbook so for example boxing you've said that the grinding demands are low it's a relatively it's a activity that is not really it's more requiring the high speed elements rather than the slow grinding movements so what yep. would you say to coaches who've said oh great i've done a needs analysis of my boxing athlete they don't really undergo grinding actions in the sport so therefore we're not going to do any grinding lifts yeah. yeah i see that a lot um, the number one thing is understanding second order effects, right? Even though we don't, we don't see ballistic demands or sorry, you don't see grinding demands in the sport. There are some benefits to performing grinding movements that are kind of hidden beneath everything. So let's say we're doing squats. Yes. We're not really pushing an opponent on, off their feet or anything in boxing, but we're creating knee health and quadriceps strength that indirectly benefits a boxer by maybe improving punching strength, uh, improving their knee health so they can train for a longer period of time. And what exercise selection should be is improving multitude of factors that can indirectly benefit the athlete. So at the end of the day, the sum of the parts is what improves performance. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And Again, just we chatted off air about having the importance of strength and conditioning coaches at least having some kind of experience within the sport that they're working with. And it's 
it's easy i've had other coaches or are they even trainers who are like oh yeah i did a boxer size session i know what boxing involves and you're like well boxer size and sparring are slightly different um (laughs) if we talk about the grinding demands one thing i can think of uh, in terms of boxing which is obviously more prevalent in other martial arts is uh when you get into a clinch um Mm -hmm. and we'll dive into sports specificity a little bit more in detail uh later on um but besides the technical work of becoming more skilled in the clinch um what kind of exercises or things would you potentially look to put in place for improving strength in the clinch for boxers yes just for boxers any grinding type of movements for the upper body you're looking at horizontal pulling vertical pulling um some sort of horizontal pushing like some volume in the bench press uh keeping the overall upper body muscles strong like maybe perhaps the pulling muscles because a lot of the clinch is pulling you're pulling the arm into position you're pulling the head into position i don't think it's something that i would focus on a lot with a boxer because even though boxers do clinch it's not a big part of their game right they don't strike from the clinch usually they're just trying to establish some sort of position and it really depends if i'm working with like pro professionals or amateurs because you know amateur boxing is a lot different the intensity is a lot higher they're more in and out with their shots um they don't have to ride that 12 rounds so the demands are quite different even within the sport of boxing depending on the rule set right yeah and it's funny you just said that amateur boxing is more intense which i would completely agree because mm-hmm. it's if we go yeah. back to the needs analysis it's funny when uh when I was part of the GB boxing team uh, heading into the 2016 Olympics, we would have professional boxers come and spar the amateurs. And uh, this might surprise a few boxing fans, but the amateurs would always hand it to the pros and often the pros would end up leaving. And you Mm -hmm. think, well, hang on a minute. That's very funny. (laughs) You think, hang on a minute, the amount of, for example, I've heard people who talk about professional boxers that are, well, they do 12 threes. So they must be fitter. Whereas amateurs only do three threes. And you're like, but let's not forget the intensity of those three minute rounds. Yeah. A lot of people think of intensity as, Oh, how hard did they punch? How hard are they going? When reality is if you have less rounds, you can expend more energy within those rounds. It's all about pacing. Absolutely. And uh, so it's safe to say like amateurs go at a higher pace because they need to do more. They need to score more because they have a lesser time limit to do so. Yeah. And the analogy I would potentially use in that example is uh, if you look at Usain Bolt's speed, average speed Mm -hmm. over 100 meters, and then compare that to the speed of, say, the 400 meter world record, the actual speed is obviously going to be faster for the 100 meters. Um, Yeah. But it's amazing how and I think this is almost especially true when we're selling boxing as a workout. It will be, oh, well, this boxing lesson lasts one hour. So therefore it's more intense than 20 minutes. And you're like, well, there's a lot of factors that we're just deciding to gloss over there. Yeah. There's like the official scientific definition of intensity, which is like percentage of one RM percentage of VO2 max. And then there's the fitness definition, right? Like how much effort are you putting in? It's like how intense was the boxer size class? So I think it's important to differentiate between the two. Absolutely. And uh, talking about intensity, uh, again, just diving into your uh, book a little bit now. Um, So one of the things you've said is, uh, well, you've pointed out that normative data can be hard to find. 
And you said the goal of strength and conditioning is not to chase high one rep max numbers or high VO2 max values. High scores in these performance indicators are byproducts of consistent and meaningful training. So reading between the lines there, I'm my opinion is that you're saying that consistency over a longer duration is potentially more important than intensity and that we're getting these numbers to try and help performance in the sport rather than getting the numbers in of themselves. Do you want to elaborate on what you were um, leading to with uh, that paragraph? Yeah. What I was saying there is when you chase testing numbers, tests are usually done with non-specific or non-sport specific exercises. So let's say you're chasing a high VO2 number. VO2 max tests are usually done, let's say on the treadmill or on the bike. If you're chasing high VO2 numbers, you're more likely going to want to run more or bike more when you, in reality, you should be practicing the sport more. So instead of getting a high VO2 number, VO2 max number through conditioning, the, the high VO2 max number should come as a byproduct of you putting in a high volume of skills training. So not only are you building that conditioning, you're building the skills as well. That's something that I've said in the ebook as well, and I'm sure we'll talk about later. It's really hard to separate, or it's not hard, but you should you should not separate skills and conditioning. Because at the end of the day, you can always build conditioning through your skills training, but you can't build skills through your conditioning. That's that's interesting. Um if if I was just to play devil's advocate on that, um yeah. and the thing I the thing I've said to you offline that I really like about your ebook is that you give context to, for example, you've uh, mentioned if it was a novice uh, martial arts, mm-hmm. then you're even more likely to go down this uh, specific route. But just yeah. uh, playing devil's advocate, what would you say to somebody who said something like, for example, I'm going to be able to overload the physiological systems more in, for example, a uh, sprint or 30 second what bike uh compared to say, I don't know, sparring where you can't necessarily directly control the intensity. Yeah, that's totally valid, especially things for like uh, when you're working on anaerobic power or alactic repeats. Some of that you can't really stimulate within the sport, let's say for more advanced athletes. Then that's the scenario where I would say, yes, maybe use the aerodynes, experiment with some sprints. So it's really context specific. The thing I don't want to always do is try to make every training recommendation towards the pros towards advanced athletes right because there's a lot of novice and intermediate athletes trying to improve and what i'm doing with the ebook is encouraging them yes you need to improve your conditioning but practice your sport more instead of looking for all these outside modalities to to perform right yeah and as i said uh off air what i like about your ebook is it's not just, oh, here's a magic secret exercise that you've, like, you know, those mm-hmm. blogs you see where it's three magic exercises to improve kicking or punching power. And uh, in my mind, I just, <laughs> it uh, reminds me when I compete in powerlifting and one of the competition venues that I've competed at, there's a banner up, which I love. And it says uh, three new ways to lift more weight. And it's number one, get stronger. Number two, get stronger. Number three, get stronger. And obviously it's half tongue in cheek. And obviously there's technical improvements that can be had and whatnot. But Uh, uh the fact that it hints the fact that there is no secret source, you have to do the work. No secret. And uh, one thing, a a thing that you discuss in your book is uh, something called the barbell strategy. Now, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like Pareto's law, so the 80-20 principle, I think has almost been done to death by several different ebooks. But this was the first time that I'd heard of uh, high risk, high reward and low risk, low reward training. Do you want to just elaborate on that for the listeners who are not aware of the barbell strategy? So the barbell strategy was initially a financial investment strategy that was talking about, we're going to put our money into low risk stocks or low risk investments, and that's going to make us the money in the long term. But we're going to allocate 10 to 20% of that towards higher risk stocks that we can play around with. Um, They're high risk, high reward. So if they work out, we're going to make a lot of money. If they don't, then we still have the foundation to pull back on, right? So the same logic kind of applies to exercise selection. So throughout an SNC program, we want to pick exercises that we know work and that we know we can always fall back on. So the compound lifts, um, consistent mobility, uh, single joint exercises to improve single joint health, um, aerobic based conditioning that sets a platform for things like anaerobic and alactic performance. And then once that's covered, we can dive into 10 or 20% of um, specialized exercises, really high intensity plow metrics that might or might not transfer to the sport. But what the barbell strategy says is even though, or even if that high risk, high reward doesn't work, we have this huge base to fall back on, right? We're still healthy. We're still improving strength over time. We're still improving ballistic power over time. So that's what the barbell strategy is in combat sports, in my opinion. And just thinking off the top of my head here, would it be, I don't know whether this analogy works or not, so I'll leave mm-hmm. you judge. Would it be saying that we're trying to avoid either of these two scenarios? We don't want to be in a scenario where we put all our money on, say, I don't know, 36 on the roulette wheel or whatever. But equally, mm-hmm. we don't want to put, we don't want to divide our money so small, so literally smallly um, between each number that we don't really get much back because we've already wasted a lot of our other bets. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's a game of cost to benefit, right? In terms of selecting exercises, it's like you don't want such a wide variety of exercises where the training effect is watered down, Mm -hmm. but you don't want to invest into one strategy only where if that doesn't work, then you've achieved nothing at all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose what I like about that approach is, um, when you find the sweet spot between, for example, here's what's going to give us most of the benefit and here's a little sprinkling of stuff that might work, then at least you know, for example, if you have the best preparation you've ever had, you can have reasonable confidence that small tweaks you work, yeah, exactly. went for worked. Yeah. Um, whereas to use one of Dan John's analogies, if you've got weeds growing in your garden and you have also got your plants growing in your garden, if you put 10 different weed killers in, and all of a sudden the weeds die, but the plants die. You don't actually know which one had the effect because you've used. So yeah, many yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. And one thing you mentioned in the uh, barbell strategy in the high risk, high reward, low risk, low reward. It was, you spoke about volume, which again is uh, most SSCs would agree on. You spoke about intensity, but one really interesting thing you said, and I think it's also interesting in light of uh, Lomachenko versus Lopez this weekend is mm-hmm. the idea of cognitive load. Um, so, for those who've never really heard that expression or for SNC coaches that purely see 
sport and SNC as either volume or intensity. Do you want to just elaborate on what you mean by that? Cognitive load is a term taken from the skills development kind of area of training. What, what that refers to is how much information or how much novel stimulus the athlete is taking in during their practice, during their skills training, during their SNC. So if we teach a athlete new skills during that session, it's safe to say that there is going to be a higher cognitive load because it's challenging their mental systems. It's challenging their um, skill acquisition, challenging their skill development. And I think that variable is underrated when it comes to combat sports SNC. Um, just because something is low intensity doesn't mean the volume can't be high. doesn't mean the cognitive load can't be high. And I think that funnels into overall stress at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Funny enough, just uh, thinking of a previous podcast I've had with um, a guy called Tom Green, he works with um, school edge athletes, but he said towards exam periods, he will take out uh, anything that he thinks is going to be too cognitively overloading because he feels like a lot of their mental space is already taken up by exam pressures and what exams will be asking of these kids. So for example, um, again, paraphrasing, let's say if you think a snatcher mm-hmm. and clean is cognitively overloading for a kid who's never really learned it, those will come out and it might be something like, I don't know, a trap bar jump or a dumbbell snatch. Um, whereas mm-hmm. when it's early in the academic year where the cognitive overload or the exam pressures aren't so high, that's when he'll teach the stuff. I don't know, your A skips, your B skips that require you to yeah. really, really think about yeah. it. Yeah. So in practice, when we SNC coaches think about um, readiness for a certain type of SNC session, it's safe to say if we have a, if we have a high intensity session, let's say plow metrics or max strength, we want our athlete rested and recovered for that session, right? I think same goes for cognitive load. If we know that they're going into a sparring session that has technically a lot of cognitive load, a lot of um, cognitive overload, we want them fresh as well because we see that session as a way for them to improve. All right, so we want them coming in rested, well-recovered. So that's why I consider that one of the big three variables when we're talking about training categorization and like um, understanding the variables within training, we have volume intensity and then cognitive load. And uh, just going back to mentioning uh, Lomachenko, you had a post uh, the yeah. other day uh, and I, for anyone who's not seen, it, even if you don't enjoy boxing, go and watch it on YouTube, the build up to the Lo- uh, Lopez fight. And for those who haven't seen it, Lomachenko is hitting these uh, flashing lights as they come up. And anyway, your your post said uh, you're not Lomachenko. And yeah. um, a lot of people see these potentially novel methods and think, oh, well, if I integrate that into my six-week block, that's going to make the difference. Do you want to elaborate on why that's a bit of a misguided approach? That's a misguided approach because even though you're working on some of the same aspects – such as hand-eye coordination, reaction time, you're not doing it. You're not doing it within sport-specific means, right? So instead of touching lights, you really should be looking for openings with your sparring partner, working on your jab, working on your uh, right or left straight. And I don't think sport-specific training can be replaced by such things like hand-eye coordination with the lights, 
the reason why he does it, in my opinion, is he's maxed out on skills training. He's training like twice a day for a week or, or he's tr- training twice a day each week. So for him, it's like, how do I get more free training in a sense? Right. How do I get in training without hindering recovery? And I think for him, that's training the uh, supplemental parts like his eye muscles, his reaction time. Yeah, it's funny because many people see that and they think, oh, this is, for example, the secret sauce. And that's an interesting opinion in the sense of you think it's filling gaps because he is tapped out. I mean, anyone who's not seen Lomachenko or doesn't no boxing then youtube him because as you said there's so many things mm-hmm. and uh in a recent interview with i'm trying to remember the boxer's name now um not luke campbell um oh brain's gone dead it'll come to me um but he said that fighting lomachenko was so cognitively overwhelming because of all the feints that he uses the footwork he uses and he said that his body was just tense all the time because he didn't know when the punch was coming and the mental energy and the cognitive overload of fighting Lomachenko just completely sapped him. And he said, yes, Lomachenko is powerful. He hits hard, but it's the fact of the other things he does to fighters that just sees them fall to pieces. Yeah. Which makes me think cognitive load plays a big part in conditioning. You can be really well conditioned, but if you're thinking too much or you're doubting your own movements because the opponent is making you think, then you're going to, expend more energy you're going to become less efficient in the ring well it's funny because uh again i've not boxed competitively for years now but on the odd occasion where i have gone back into sparring i'd mm-hmm. like to say conditioning wise like just from a physiological perspective I- yeah. i'm okay but the overload of not having the perceptual motor skills and the timing mm-hmm. being shot to pieces it's just overwhelming. It's not even like I'm breathing that hard. It's just that I'm like, I just don't know what to do because my brain doesn't have the anticipatory responses anymore that obviously it would have done when I was practicing the skill multiple times a week. Yeah. This goes back to the philosophy of not chasing the high one RM or the high VO two max numbers. It doesn't really matter if you have a higher VO two max than your opponent. If your skills aren't aren't up to par, then he's going to outbox you hundred percent of the time. Yeah. And it make you less efficient. He's going to make you expend more oxygen for less of an outcome. So that's why I think skills training is so important. If you focus on the skills training, you can close the gap between you and your opponent and you're building VO2 max at the same time, or you're building conditioning or your gas tank or whatever you want to call it. And it's interesting. You talk about skills training, closing the gap, because, uh, one of the questions I do have in terms of the barbell strategy mm-hmm. is avoiding what you describe in your book as no man's land. So we've got the low risk, low reward. We've got the high risk, high reward. Um, but what I see a lot of boxes and I mean, I'm not going to name names, but you see a lot of strength and conditioning or supposed strength and conditioning coaches using no man's land training. Um, could you just elaborate on what no man's land training is and what type of things boxers or martial artists should be looking to avoid? It's really subjective, but I think no man's land training is exercises that don't improve your systemic strength or power. They don't work towards specific performance measures toward your sport, and it's not really considered an SDE. So in the book, I describe things like kettlebell circuits, um, metcons, CrossFit workouts. They on paper, they improve a lot of physiological factors. So let's say they improve strength endurance, they improve anaerobic capacity. 
but they're all pretty non-specific to the sport and they're not building specific injury mitigation for certain joints that are like susceptible in combat sports. So it's, it's like casting a wide net when you don't really need to be, when you, when you know what, which fish to catch, but you still decide to, okay, let's just train everything at once and hope for the best. That's what no man's land training is. And the downside to that is you're creating a lot of fatigue that carries over to skills training that carries over to um, maybe your high days where you should be perform- performing plyometrics or ballistics or STEs, right? So not only it's good to catch a wide net, maybe when you're in a very early GPP phase, but in terms of sports performance, I think it takes away from time that could be spent doing everything else. Yeah. And to go back to your wide net analogy, I think uh, times when I think it would be appropriate is if you're at mm-hmm. such a low level of sport or for example, yes, exactly. you're, yeah. you're, you're a youth a athlete. Youth athlete. Yeah. And it's one of those where as a young kid, for example, you might find that by improving a child's uh, badminton skills, they get better at tennis, mm-hmm. they get better at squash when they're at that lower level, because the general skill of striking an object is loosely the same. Whereas, for example, yeah. if Andy Murray starts playing badminton, then that is too close to the specific skill and he's too tapped out on tennis for badminton mm-hmm. to feed anything into it. Yep, exactly. And that goes back to um, this fight this weekend with Loma. He's known to like play basketball, play tennis during his camp. Um, I think that really speaks to like the Soviet side of athletic development where like they came, they came up with periodization. They came up with the GPP phase, the SPP phase. They know when to cast that wide net and then when to reel it in and really be specific about things. And it's funny because it's so easy. Um, William Wayland, who you reference in your book, um, he says that it's you're not going to learn anything off one-minute snippets off Instagram. And it's so easy to think, oh, well, Lomachenko plays basketball. Lomachenko does these reaction games. If I start adding basketball and reaction games, I'm going to, that's why he's such <laughs> Improve a Improve my boxing somehow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, I think it just, just watching the documentary, I think, Jesus, he is not just a boxer. He's an incredible athlete. And I honestly think if you, this is almost my issue with CrossFit's fittest on earth tagline, because I always think fittest for what, but that aside, I think someone mm-hmm. like Lomachenko, I think he would do a reasonably good job at a reasonably high level in most sports. And I'm not saying he's going to be, for example, a world champion basketballer, footballer or whatever, but I don't think he would look out of place doing the technical skills in those sports at a recreational level, for example. Yeah, there's videos of him wrestling. He can actually wrestle. There's videos of him doing Muay Thai. Like his first session in, he can kick better than most people I know. Yeah. So the skills are definitely transferable. And you can tell that him and his or his dad developed him as a youth athlete with a lot of skills, playing tennis, doing dance, playing basketball, all, all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, I'm just thinking back to something I heard Kelly Starrett say on a podcast, and it goes back to the wide net analogy. And Kelly Starrett's philosophy, or at least it was at the time, is what is going to create the skill set in an athlete that allows them to transition between tasks the fastest. So reducing that learning time. And you think, for example, going back to our badminton tennis analogy, um, if, for example, a boxer in his, I don't know, early 30s was to take up dance, 
is that going to improve mm. his boxing footwork? I mean, debatably Probably so, not. maybe, maybe yeah. not. Whereas when he's say eight years old, uh, like Lomachenko, I think might have been, then they're at a low enough level where you're casting the net wide enough where there are going to be this transferability of skills just through the general hand-to-eye coordination, hand-to-foot coordination. And then it might make the uh, teaching the angles that he creates might make it easier. But as you said, if you're casting that wide net when you're, say, I don't know, 35, you're, you're fishing it in the wrong sea, if you will. Yeah, there's a time and place to do everything. Like, I don't really like people's traditional views on how to set up a fight camp. Well, let's say we have 12 weeks. First three weeks is going to be GPP. We're going to do, we're going to cast a wide net and do fuck all. And then the last three weeks, we're going to be super specific. Like, I don't really believe in that. I think you should, depending on the level you're at, you should be doing kind of specific stuff in the GPP phase too, right? GPP phase isn't an, an excuse to do whatever you want. You're still working on, markers of sports performance so let's say for boxing we're working on like shoulder stability um we're working on uh, lower body plow metrics to keep the ankles healthy so there are really specific targets even in a gpp phase and i think some people take gpp phase as okay we'll do whatever we'll cast a really wide net and and then they go into the more specific phases having not really developed anything is it, it again this is one of the reasons why i love your book in the sense of um you're very clear on the context so for example uh using my own training as an example my gpp phase doing for example front squats for set of 10 that's probably mm-hmm. about as general as i'm gonna go whereas if i started doing um let me try and think of an example now if i started doing pistol squats for 10 reps mm, i mean yeah, it could have, you know, some general transfer for knee health. Um, it could, you know, improve mobility, but it's almost, in fact, that's a poor example. Let's ignore pistol squats. Let's say I go running um, for, yeah. you know, 30 yeah. minutes a week. It's like, well, you already should have had your enough conditioning from doing, for example, I don't know, sets of 10 in the front squat. You're not getting any additional, you've gone so general, as you said, it's going to do F4. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the context of powerlifting, let's say, you're, you're, you're competing in a powerlifting meet in 12 weeks. Your GPP phase should look like split squats and front squats. It shouldn't look like, okay, let's just do CrossFit workouts for fun. Let's go running. Let's go swimming. That should have been done way before you joined powerlifting. Yeah. Or that- maybe during like a restoration period where like you've just competed and you want to do something general. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's. I mean, if we talk about preseason and in season, it's almost like that should be so far off season that you've decided. Look, I'm not doing anything structured for the next two weeks. If yeah, I want to exactly. do it, I'll do it. Um, but it's not like coaches said, "Go and swim, go and CrossFit," you know, whatever. And uh, if we, in terms of like we just briefly mentioned uh, powerlifting mm-hmm. there, so something in your book that I've used for quite a while is the idea of uh, robustness circuits so uh mm-hmm. the reason why i like that is because i see a lot of warm-ups where it's like oh jog a few laps or get on the bike for five minutes and then they'll go into lifting or boxing or whatever um do you want to elaborate on what uh robustness circuits are and for example how they might look different for say a power lifter versus a boxer yeah so in the ebook i mentioned this concept of robustness circuit robustness circuit is a circuit where I've, 
I'm putting exercise together that address the low hanging fruit of combat sports injuries. So for striking athletes, this is usually the neck, the wrist, elbow, shoulder, and then for grapplers, it's usually the hip and the knee, right? So with the robustness circuit, my goal is to get the athletes performing quote unquote injury mitigation exercises right? Improving the health of those joints susceptible to injury. And we're going to do them consistently and incorporate it into the routine because a lot of athletes skip out on these. Like I've created some online programs where I'm getting people to do neck training at the end of uh, their SNC session. And sometimes they just skip it. Right. Mm-hmm. So my strategy was I'm going to put it into a circuit, make it quick and easy for everyone to do. And then I'm going to build that habit over time, right? Either put it in the warm up or put it in the cool down. Like no matter what, you have to do three sets of this. So my robustness circuit was, I think, first one is a neck exercise. Second one is a wrist and grip exercise. And then third one is something for the lower leg. So either for the uh, calf muscles or the tibialis anterior or the feet. And then that could be kind of swapped out or individualized depending on the combat sport they're participating in. The overall goal is to build ligament strength, uh, tendon strength, muscle strength. If I could prevent at least one injury with each athlete, then I've done my job in my opinion. And uh, it kind of links into another uh, post I saw of yours recently. Uh, mm-hmm. where it was saying that we need to get away from this notion that, for example, uh, we need higher rep ranges for hypertrophy and that there's actually a lot more benefits we can get from high rep training than simply just that. So I guess I'm assuming your robustness circuits, apart from maybe where you're doing the isometric stuff, I'm guessing it's probably in the higher rep ranges. Um, depending on what it is, obviously with isometric training, you can't, really do the high rep ranges i'll get them to do maybe high duration holds Mm -hmm. but it really depends on which which phase we're in i think let's say if we're in the initial phases we'll do sets of 15 on calf raises and then maybe i'll bring the intensity up um maybe to like five or eight reps on the single leg calf raise or something so i think it's really smart to work within a wide range of rep ranges if you're always working in within the 12 to 15, then you're never getting that high intensity stimulus that you need to build injury mitigation. And uh, on the subject of, you mentioned neck training there, um, out of interest do you, I mean, I don't know whether periodize is the right word, but when a boxer martial artist is say earlier in camp and they're doing less intense sparring or more technical sparring, versus closer to the fight when they're taking potentially heavier or harder shots. Um, Does your neck training change in relation to that? Or is it more, for example, you'll build volume uh, and general tissue tolerance first and then do more high load stuff later? How does that work? Uh, Depends how experienced they are with neck training. I tend to go from a high to low volume kind of setup throughout the training cycle. The last thing you want to do is perform a lot of tempo and a lot of isometrics when they're in the fight camp, right? Because one thing that comes with the neck training is if you've ever done it, you do get kind of sore afterwards, right? So the last thing you want to do is go into sparring with a 
soft neck with a sore neck. Yeah. And it, depending it, on the sport, they train that already in the sessions. So like in Muay Thai, there's a lot of um, Thai boxing camps that focus on a lot of clinching. And like I've, I've clinched in Bangkok with like these old coaches, senior coaches, and they just break me down. Like my neck gets super sore afterwards. And it's no wonder how they have such good chins because their neck strength is just incredible. Right. And I see them add, maybe they top off their neck training afterwards. So let's say they'll do 30 minutes of clinch training at the end of the training session. And then they're going to do some weighted, maybe um, weighted neck extensions or something like that. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, again, it's interesting because I know if it's a bit of a controversial opinion, but um, mm. some people say, for example, um, if you're playing devil's advocate, you might improve a boxer's neck strength only to allow them to take more punishment. Um, yeah, yeah. But it is, it is an interesting one. I think that really depends on the skills coach, right? Are you the type of guy to walk forwards and, and like take as many shots as you can to dish it out? Like those guys don't normally last long anyways. And it's not something I can change. I'm not going to go up to the coach and be like, Hey man, like your fighters getting hit too much. It's like, it's not my place. Right. Even though I think it's really bad for him or her. Yeah. I mean, I think you've mentioned in your ebook about Muay Thai fighters having some of the best chins, but it not being a great strategy. For yeah. Brain yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of, and we, uh, so we just spoke about protecting fires and, you know, conditioning the neck. What are your thoughts on uh, boxers where, for example, they'll have a training partner deliberately hit them in the uh, abs to try and condition them to taking a punch as a strength and conditioning coach and someone who's actually competed and been around the martial arts scene. What's your thoughts on that? From an S and C coach standpoint, it makes no sense you're not hardening the abdominal muscles by punching them from a martial arts coach perspective. It does because you are deadening the nerves and the sensations around your abs. Um, I did a lot of that as a kid because I was in Kyokushin karate, which is a basically a bare knuckle full contact type of karate. And you develop a higher pain tolerance through that. Yes. You're not working on like, um, physiological parts of your body like you're not really improving your core strength or um, the hardness of your core muscles but you are t- exposing yourself to what's to come in the fight and I think it's a mental thing for most fighters as well yeah and again I'd, I'd completely uh, I'd completely agree with the mental side I mean psychologically if you've not taken a full-on body shot then uh, mm-hmm. I mean I can't think of many things like if I went back to sparring now uh, the honest truth is headshot I could just about psychologically come to terms with the thought of being hit with a good body shot would mm-hmm. scare the shit out of me <laughs> yeah that's the difference between MMA fighters and a lot of striking sports like boxing kickboxing Muay Thai I have an opinion where MMA athletes don't train as many body shots and they're generally much softer in the body mm-hmm because they have so many other skills to work on. They're punching the head. They're going for leg locks. They're going for submissions that like boxers and kickboxers just don't do right. They spend most of their time taking shots to the body, taking shots to the rib, taking shots to the abdominals. So 
even between striking sports, there is a difference in demands. Yeah. And I always find the concept of uh, crossover fights. I mean, regardless of whether you think it's a circus show or there's actually uh, mm-hmm. logic in it, I do find opinions like that interesting in terms of, for example, could a boxer beat an MMA fight? And again, it goes back to your sport practice rules all. So like, I, I hate it when fans of, I don't know, an MMA guy will be like, oh, but he's so powerful. He could knock the boxer out in one punch. And it's like, yeah, but how much punching time yeah. has he spent versus a boxer who's boxed yeah, exactly. all their life? Exactly. The distance is different. The mental game is different. The amount of rounds is different. Um, Connor versus Floyd was a big thing. Yeah, and it, again, that fight, if any fight, was the, um, I suppose, the epitome of sports practice rules all. Like, there were so many analogies I heard in the build-up to the fight that I resonated with. Um, one I liked was uh, something along the lines of Mayweather beats Connor in a ring, Connor beats uh, Mayweather in an octagon, and Ronnie mm-hmm. O'Sullivan beats them both at snooker. Yeah, snooker. <laughs> exactly. Sports-specific. Um, exactly. Um in terms of sports specific, if we talk quickly about being athlete specific, um, let's say you've, in fact, walk me through. So I'm a boxer. I walk into your gym. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be working with you for the first time. What does that process look like in terms of uh, testing? You getting to know me as an athlete and you telling me what we can realistically achieve together in a given time frame. Um, first off, we're really going to focus on the athlete. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, chat with them. Um, what brought you to boxing? How long have you been boxing for? And I'll ask things like, what are your ultimate goal, right? Like, are you trying to box the Olympics? Are you trying to go pro? What's the timeline we're working with? So after I understand the athlete, then I'll start working on the physiological side of things. Uh, I'm going to do maybe some light testing. I'll test some strength, test some powers. Um, maybe I'll do things like trap bar deadlift see what where their relative strength is. I'll test their vertical power production through jumps, horizontal power production through jumps. And then I'll want to watch some footage of them spar, footage of them move around. Because I'm like kind of knowledgeable with the striking sports, I can kind of tell what kind of style they tend to utilize within the ring or what their boxing style is. And we're going to try to um, first improve him as an athlete, make sure he can train longer, and improve their skills more reliably. And then I'll cater towards his style, right? Like, is he more of a stand in your face um, kind of fighter or is he in and out, try to outbox you from a distance kind of fighter? Uh, I try to take all those into account. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm just searching for a quote in your book that I particularly liked Mm -hmm. because it's so easy especially in this social media driven world, it's so easy just to say to an athlete, whatever you want them to hear. Like, for example, if they come, if I come to you and I say, oh, well, I want to improve my ability to sustain my punching output. It'd be easy for you just to say, yep, we can do that. Ignoring context of how long we've got working with each other. Um, ah, Here's the quote. Uh, uh, It's important that we first develop the athletes so they possess the capabilities to train consistently and compete successfully in the sport before developing specific traits that allow their individual style to shine. So my next question is um, if I was to give you uh, two boxers, one who's a high volume puncher and the other guy who is an explode and recover type of fighter, um, 
what would be the similarities between their training programs, assuming stuff like injury history, training age, et cetera, is the same. Everything's the same apart from their, their style within the ring. Yeah. So what are the similarities and at what point might their training program look different? I think I might surprise a few coaches by saying, I think 90% of their program will look identical. Um, I do want to cater towards, let's say, an explode and relax kind of fighter. But all of that comes within the skills training. They're working with the coach. I'm not going to be able to change everything, right? So I'm looking for, like, I'm using the barbell strategy to think, what are the lowest risk exercises I can do to improve him as a whole? Cause that's most, that's more impactful. Let's say I try to do landmine punches with them and try to mimic the sporting work to rest ratios. I don't, I'm not doing much there. He's already become a explode and recover type of athlete through skills training, not necessarily through the S and C. So it's very hard to reinforce their style. I'm just trying to reinforce them as an athlete so they can, uh, utilize their style more efficiently if that makes sense yeah and a bit of a, a devil's advocate question just because i'm intrigued yeah. in your opinion if hypothetically a boxing coach came to you and they said all oh, right traditionally my guys fought in a high volume punching in fact no let's go explode and recover because that mm-hmm. might be easier conceptually uh this guy's an explode and recover type of guy however to win his next fight i think the punch output needs to be higher and i think he needs to I basically stick it on the other guy from the get-go. So effectively trying to, I suppose, change the style. Now you said there that 90% of the stuff is going mm-hmm. to look the same, which to be fair, I agree with. Um, is How would you entertain that kind of conversation where somebody, a coach says physiologically, they need to change their style? Between me and the coach, I might say something like, okay, we're going to try our best to maybe improve the aerobic or anaerobic system. Um, trying to get his gas tank larger, uh, stuff like that. Between me and you, I'd say it's up to the coach. Like, like that. for them to sustain more punches throughout a fight, stop punching is hard, right? <laughs> like, you have a limited gas tank, stop punching is hard so you can improve the punch output. I think it's something that they need to address. On my end, I'm not. I'm honestly not sure what I can do about it because we can do all the aerobic stuff and make sure his aerobic uh, tank is really good. But when it comes down to the fight, if he decides to punch hard because he's nervous or something, then that's out of my control. Right? There's, there's the physiological side of conditioning, which is like how much endurance do you have? How well developed are your energy systems? And then there is the pacing side of things. How does the, ener- how does the athlete decide to expend that energy? And right, so I don't think the difference between skill sets is necessarily uh, a huge difference between physiological systems. It's just how the athlete decides to use it. Obviously, if you train and you fight a lot with the explode and recover style, you're obviously going to develop some physiological traits like certain type of anaerobic enzymes or alectic enzymes that um, that support that. But I really think it comes from the fight and SNC is kind of secondary. Yeah. I must say, I like the honesty in your answer because uh, a mistake I've made earlier in my career is thinking mm-hmm. that SNC 
rules all. And it's like, oh, if I just get my fighter more condition, they will win. And like, well, if that was the case, then CrossFit athletes who are supposedly the fittest on earth would be world champion boxers because, well, yeah. they're fitter than everyone. So if that's all that counts, then um, away you go. But no, that, that answer makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it gives, them, it gives them a better chance of winning, right? It gives them a platform to win. Yes. Um, no puns intended. No pun intended. No, <laughs> I like podcast. that. I like um, that a lot. We're trying to give them a big gas tank. How they use it is up to them. Yeah, yeah. And again, going back to uh, Lomachenko as an example, on a podcast I'd listened to where Ben Davidson was talking through his style, and he said something mm-hmm. that makes him so tricky is – he will differentiate the force output or the speed output of the punch. Sometimes he'll just try and, uh, well, basically, I suppose, touch it up. And other times he'll go to plant his feet. And the fact that a boxer can't brace or can't really predict when he's going to switch it up is what makes him so dangerous. Whereas, as you said in your example, if you've got someone who goes into a fight and just loads up, well, the reason they can't recover is just because the intensity is too high. It's not, it might not necessarily Mm -hmm. be a conditioning issue. It might be a tactical issue might be yeah. a psychological issue and as i've said in my earlier career i thought to myself oh if i've got an athlete who can leave the floor with 40 kilos and i bump that up to 100 kilos like they're more powerful but as you said they mm-hmm. may or may not be but how they use that within the intricacy of a punch is yeah exactly it's up to them well wow. you have some influence like snc coaches have some influence as well i think not only should we prescribe exercises for them we have to kind of bridge the gap between, okay, let's explain to the athlete, how is this vertical jump going to help you in a punch, even though the two movement patterns don't look the same, right? Then I'd, I'm, I'd say something like um, how much force you put into the ground can transfer over to your punch. And then maybe we'll go into the details of how to do so. Maybe you're going to push off the back leg more on a jab or on a straight or on a hook. So it pays off to know some boxing technique or some martial arts technique for sure. Yeah. And I think that hundred percent helps with the buying, but what I like about the key theme I got through your book is it's mm-hmm. not saying that N equals one, I vertical jump goes up, you'll punch harder, which again, it's difficult in a social media driven world. One to relay that message factually correct, but two do it in such a way that you're still driving people to your posts and then able to educate them. It's very tough to, strike the balance and that's what i liked so much about your book is this fact that mm-hmm. it's not saying oh just get stronger you'll punch harder and it's not saying do these specific exercises punch harder it's this is how the jigsaw works in collaboration with all the pieces not here is the i suppose the missing puzzle piece if you will yeah context specific absolutely and speaking about context specific we mentioned earlier about uh, amateur boxers actually potentially needing to train at a higher intensity or potentially being better conditioned as a result of that. Um, what are some of the pros and cons of using um, sports specific work to rest ratio? So for example, if I said to you as a boxing coach, oh, conditioning wise, we only ever do three minutes on one minute off because that's what they'll fight at the end of the day. So I don't see any point doing anything else. How would you counter slash agree with that statement? Um, you have to first look back at the role of the SNC coach. If we've, if our philosophy is that SNC is a supplement, we shouldn't necessarily do whatever they're doing already in the skills training room. If they're always in that three times three, uh, three rounds of three minutes mode, maybe it 
makes more sense for us to work on everything else, like longer rounds to build the aerobic base, um, really short intervals to work on a lactic power or whatever. So I think it's to round out energy system development at the end of the day. And then when it comes close to fight time, I'm going to pull back on everything, let the skills training do the work because they're more, they're most likely closer to the fight before they deload. So, so funny enough to say, I think as the fight gets closer, the S and C coach should do less work. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As you said, let the, let the sport take over it. And as they, uh, going back to the uh, example of the two different fighters and the high volume versus the explode and recover. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a Dan John quote, but uh, it says dance with the girl that brought you. I, if something <laughs> is, is something's gonna, is something what is yeah. defining you as an athlete, then that something is what you need to work on when it's getting close to your competition. And even psychologically doing something you're good at feels good. Um, and psychologically is going to play into your confidence if you're still working on your weaknesses with a week to Mm -hmm. go in the fight you're worrying about what your opponent might do to you rather than what you're going to do to them yep exactly uh just and in the the last few questions that i've got written down Mm -hmm. just because i love the quote so much what is your opinion on fitness coaches technical coaches strength conditioning coaches whatever uh using strength and conditioning to improve mental toughness How that's usually done is through very hard conditioning intervals. Um, I'm not that well versed in mental toughness research, but I think it has to do a lot with their motivation to stay in the sport, their motivation to win, uh, how much they value winning, how much they value their time in the sport. And I don't think that's something we can build as SNC coaches through conditioning intervals. Yes, they're pushing hard. Um, You're forcing them to push through the pain, but that pain is very context specific. Just because they can push through 20 sets of hard intervals doesn't mean that they can get knocked down from a punch and decide to stand back up. So the pain's different. Context is different. Yeah. I don't think, especially with elite athletes, they got to where they are through mental toughness. I don't think mental toughness is... Um, okay, I'm deciding not to quit in this specific set. Mental toughness is I'm deciding to sacrifice parts of my life to become good at the sport, which means I'm going to the gym when I don't want to. Uh, I'm out training when I'm when I can be partying. Mental toughness isn't one act of sacrifice. It's like a long term journey for most athletes. Yeah, I like that a lot, and it's funny because my. Uh my partner works in mental health and one of her issues whenever mental health is brought up is well, not an issue. That's the wrong word, but is Mm -hmm. the same with mental toughness, your definition of mental toughness and what you believe it to be might be different to what I believe it to be. And what I like there was you mentioned that you're not well-versed in the research and quite frankly, neither am I, but it's one Mm -hmm. of those things where it's a bit of a buzzword and people either assume it to mean something it's not, or they assume that their definition of mentally tough, which might be, I don't know, a specific workout or whatever, is then universal in all situations, in all circumstances. Yeah. And again, just to, uh, just another quote from your book that I absolutely love uh, in terms of S&C being used for mental toughness. Uh, we're talking about fighters who punch each other in the face and choke each other unconscious. 
please don't try and build mental toughness with your strength and conditioning sessions. Just don't. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's most likely not going to happen. Um, and in terms, uh, in terms of, uh, we've already mentioned testing, so we'll skip that question. Uh, another mm-hmm. concept that you've mentioned, which um, is something that I agree with, is loading unfavorable ranges. So when people get into strength and conditioning or first learn, for example, how to squat, how to deadlift, it's like, right, knees must be in line with the toes, the back cannot bend whatsoever. And yet if you look at something like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's like someone's trying to snap you in two. Um, yet you're saying that that same mechanism in jujitsu, we're going to somewhat ignore it. Yet in the weights room, it's like, oh, well, we can't load an unfavorable range. Um, so how do you start by loading unfavorable ranges and how do you, I guess, progress it in a sensible and logical manner, if that makes sense? I think the first step is to tackle the concept of unfavorable, unfavorable ranges. Um, People with backgrounds such as powerlifting, like me and yourself, um, we have this notion that there are specific ranges of motion or specific positions that are inherently bad. And people who think that don't really understand the adaptability of the human body. If you load a range, the more frequent you're in, how do I say this? The more frequently you load a range, a range of motion within a certain joint, the more acclimated it becomes to handle load in that range. So let's say for the knees, for example, um, the biggest thing people say is, what, don't let your knees go past your toes, right? Because most people's knees are weak when they go into deep flexion. So most people's recommendations would be let's not get into that position at all and then the problem is the problem with that is you're going to have to get into those positions in your sport inside or in in your life somewhere so why not improve it by progressively loading it same goes with stuff like uh, shoulder internal rotation external rotation people are very scared to load it because they're really weak in those positions and then they get really surprised when they get injured in the same way right so methods of which i do it is um i'll go through a progression with isometrics eccentrics concentrics make sure the uh, range of motion is where we want to see before i load it with weights and when you when you say it's where you want to see um do you mean as in for example you will build the range first unloaded and then add weight or do you yes 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 sorry yeah i'll build the i'll build the range with body weight so let's say we're going to do a split squat isometric where the knee kind of tracks over the toes and then we might do it we might rep it out with slow eccentrics uh and then once they feel comfortable within that range let's start to load it and then increase the weight increase the velocity of, of the movement so same progressions as you would do in normal athletic performance, but applied to a more extreme range for your range of motion for your joints. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's funny because that's really how I conceptualize uh, rehab or prehab, whatever you want to define it as uh, mm-hmm. with athletes. It's like, right, what range can we get into where it won't aggravate you? 
yeah, can we get load in there? Can we increase that over time? Um, I like what you said about body weight, about eccentrics. And as I said, it's something I'm playing around with. I've played around with for a while, but I keep having a niggly quad, which doesn't seem to like end range knee extension. But then I think in my powerlifting training, I don't really do that. Like squats seem to be fine, but then something like a sissy squat would really piss my quad off at the moment. But I'm like, right, what can I, can I train up to the range that it's going to get angry at and then just gradually load that and gradually increase that range of motion over time? Yeah, because you're not getting a, like the same degree of uh, knee flexion with your competitive squats as you are with the sissy squats and like the knee over toe lunges and all that stuff. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure I've heard it somewhere else, but the range you don't train in is the range you ultimately end up picking up niggles in. Yep, exactly. And, uh, if, go on. If you want protection within a certain range of motion, you obviously have to load it. You have to have put your joint through that, right? So that's what the robustness circuit's all about, um, exposing athletes to the environment before the environment gets to them, essentially. Yeah, I like that. So, uh, the last place you want to be when you learn how to swim for the first time is uh, chucked off a boat. In the yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and last couple of questions before uh, wrapping up. In terms of improving uh, deceleration strength or even assessing deceleration strength in fighters, um, you uh, in your book you mentioned, and forgive me if I pronounce this name wrong, um, but you mentioned Arnold uh, Akuru, and you said that he mm. was powerful concentrically, um, so producing force, but with repeated explosion, explosive type movements, you said it was a relative weakness. Um, so my first question is, how did you determine um, that both of those were the case? Uh, and my second question is, how did you go about improving his repeated explosiveness? So I came to that conclusion because I saw that his strikes were very powerful, but he was throwing a lot of single strikes that would put him out of position. So essentially the recovery position of the limb wasn't where we wanted it to be. So let's say he gave a big uh, right straight. He wouldn't be able to bring that arm back as quickly. But I think that has to do with relaxation speed as much as it is deceleration speed. So with that, uh, I give examples of like medicine ball deceleration. So like the fake throws, um, I got him to do a bit more plyometrics to develop that relaxation speed. I think the most powerful athletes and the ones that can, the, the fastest athletes are the ones that could relax the most. All right. And that all comes from plyometrics and deceleration work and like repeated ballistic work. And is this something like you said that the uh, hand wasn't in the right position um, to um, throw another strike again yeah, to throw another strike again yeah how do you again i suppose just playing devil's advocate here um mm -hmm. how do you determine or is it just kind of gut feel and experience in the sport how do you determine that for example he can't do that because he for example doesn't have the physiological underpinning mm -hmm. machinery versus for example the um, skill right yeah 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 uh i would side with the skill side of things i want to work on his technique first mm -hmm. and foremost before i work on the physiological side so that's that's where bridging the gap comes from i know what it takes in order to throw consecutive strikes i know the proper technique 
And then I'm just supplementing that with the training, right? I'm driving, driving the point through with deceleration exercises, like, um, like the med ball throws and the med ball slams. And by, by me explaining that to him, I think it really got through to him and he could connect the two pieces. Like, Hey, like this concept makes sense. I'm going to try to apply it to my skills training now. And it's funny because there's so many, depending on the context, there's certain sporting examples I think of where I'll see coaches try and coach a certain movement or a certain skill. And I'll immediately think, no, 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 that athlete doesn't have the underlying physi- physiological capabilities to do that. So for example, um, people talking about youth athletes getting low in acceleration and I'm like, yeah, they don't have the strength. They don't yeah. have the single leg strength yet. Yeah. Whereas in, in other times, it's almost like uh, rather than a pyramid, I almost imagine it like, a, I suppose, in the little infinity symbol. Um, sure. And in the example you just mentioned, I think that working on the physical side of things will be as much about, I suppose, training his brain or, you know, just bringing it to his cognitive awareness so that when he then goes into um, when he then goes into his technical work, he's had the chance to expose his brain to that kind of work. And it might be that they just work hand in hand. And the, even though it might induce a physiological adaptation that Mm -hmm. just the sheer fact of bringing it to his attention then helps the technical training, or it might just be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in, in terms of sports specificity where I look at it and I think, even if this isn't improving the physiological mechanism, like for example, um, I won't name names, but a Paralympic table tennis player I know who would have stuff programmed for him. And I worked closely with the coach and um, was lucky enough to work with himself. And he said, whether the quote unquote sports specific stuff physiologically makes a difference, isn't as important as the fact of this is his feel good factor nearer to competition. So Mm -hmm. as long as, and this is why I love what you said when you said, Oh, to me as a strength and conditioning professional, you might say, Oh, it's doing, one thing or it's not maybe not doing anything but to his coach or to him you're like oh right this is going to get us moving quick around the table and sometimes the psychology of thinking that it might work and talking about your low risk low reward like is it going to harm him no is it going to make him feel better yes and in terms of risk reward maybe that's what improves him whereas if it was something that was highly physiologically taxing then it becomes as you said um potentially high risk low reward if you know realistically mm-hmm. that's not gonna be helping the mechanisms that improve sport performance yeah i think that's something that a lot of coaches and a lot of new coaches struggle with is the subjectivity of what performance training might like entail like we don't really know all the answers and people don't feel comfortable when they don't know all the answers but so that's what my book was for. Like, let's try to create a system where we can try to make the best decision possible. I'm not saying it's the best, but let's create a system where we can be as accurate as possible. And if it doesn't work, at least we know the variables of which to manipulate to make it better the next time. Yeah. And just uh, diving into some questions on sports specificity before we wrap up, mm-hmm. how do you define sports specificity? In terms of exercise selection or general training? Uh, let's go. Or... In fact, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll ask a better question um, because I feel like sports specificity is kind of bastardized and means different things. What is the difference between, for example, playing the sport, which is what I would define as sports specific, 
versus uh, specific developmental exercises that you mentioned in your book? So skills training versus SDE, right? Like what, yeah, what are yeah. the differences? Yes. Uh, um, SDEs are to overload certain patterns seen in the sport that you normally can't do with skills training alone. So let's say a, for example, a med ball punch would be widely considered as an SDE. Um, we're able to overload the punching pattern with a medicine ball. Whether that's effective for the athlete depends on a huge amount of things, right? Like have they done the base building work like um, vertical power production, horizontal power production? Are they an efficient puncher to begin with do they have the skills required to have a hard punch in the in the first place all right we're going to cover all our bases first before we utilize the sde so the sde is really there to overload it in hopes of improving maybe concentric velocity improving the body mass behind each punch like the impact effective impact Basically training things that we normally can't just from skills training or just from GPP work, for example. And what I like there was you said, look, just because it is a specific development to exercise doesn't mean that you just drag and drop it into a training program and all of a sudden you're punching harder and faster. Um, what would and you give a few examples in the book? So you mentioned a med ball punch. Why would, for example, something or why might something like a med ball punch be better or more effective than say punching with dumbbells if i'm a boxing coach i think well hang on a minute we're still it looks like a punch so therefore it must be improving it in some kind of way uh with the med ball punch you're holding it in a different angle right you're throwing the ball horizontally and all the force is coming horizontally whereas if you're holding a dumbbell all the all the because of force of gravity everything's up and down everything's vertical so the force of which you're punching does not line up with the implement that you're using right a lot of people use dumbbell punches i don't think anyone's ever used dumbbell punches to increase punching power it's mainly to build um shoulder shoulder endurance that you normally can't without uh using weights a lot of strength coaches, I know, like, uh, I think you're going to have Yaspar on the yes, podcast. Yes, yes, Sam. Yeah, he absolutely hates it. Um, I, I don't use it myself. I don't see the point. Skills tra- skills trainers, like boxing trainers, use it a lot. You see uh, Floyd Mayweather use it. You see maybe Manny Pacquiao. I don't, I don't really remember, but, yeah, it's, it's up to them. I, I don't think it's worth my time to do. I'm not going to really improve shoulder endurance. That's such a... I, I feel like it's a waste of time for me. I could be building better overhead mechanics. I could be better uh, building better scapula mechanics during their pulling, all in hopes to maybe mitigate some injuries, improve their pulling strength. So that's what I mean about exercise selection in terms of cost to benefit. There are certain exercises that are better worth my time, considering if I have a combat sport athlete, I'm seeing them what, like twice a week, three times a week max for an hour. So I don't like the notion that like all these social media coaches have like, oh, I come up with a thousand exercises. We can pick from that, right? We'll just pick whatever looks good. Let's pick whatever, th- whatever we think works. I think there's a responsibility for the SNC coach to pick 
the most time efficient ones that can make the most impact. Yeah. And the analogy I suppose I'd use there is, uh, for example, you can go to a buffet or you can go to a Michelin star Mm -hmm. restaurant, the Michelin star restaurant, the quality is going to be much higher. Yeah. You might not get as much of it, but do you need as much of it when you're getting, when you know what you want to eat, when you know what cuisine you're looking for that night. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, also going back to your shoulder endurance uh, example, are you really going to improve shoulder endurance that much to a point where it's going to help a fighter in a fight? If, for example, I don't know, they're hitting the bag for 12 threes and they're doing that, I don't know, five times a week versus they never expose themselves to heavy lifting or high speed stuff because they're either always fatigued or the resistance they're using is always too light. Yeah. An example that popped up in my head was um, the Conor McGregor fight versus Floyd. Connor had his own conditioning system. Like I think he called it like the fast McGregor fast program, whatever. Um, he had a good conditioning coach in his corner. They were doing really like modern type of conditioning work. Like, okay, we're going to call this method anaerobic capacity. We're going to call this like redlining cardiac power or whatever. At the end of the day, he's still gassed to someone who punches with dumbbells, who hits the speed bag, Right. Connor wasn't willing to do any of that because he saw that as maybe too traditional. Like there was no videos of him hitting the speed bag. Um, he was training more of like a maybe like a modern mixed martial arts athlete. So that just goes to show that some of the old school methods that boxers do, like punch with dumbbells, just put in like a shitload of volume with their punches, heavy bag work, uh, speed bag work, that pays off at the end of the day because that's specific, that's building specific shoulder endurance. Yeah. And I think there's, I, you've alluded to it in your book and previous, um, previous posts. It's very easy as somebody, especially if you've never done the sport to come in with a purely S and C head. And as we mm-hmm. mentioned uh, offline, oh, why are you getting a hit in the abs? That's, you know, surely you should be training to avoid a punch or for example, oh, why are we punching with dumbbells? And actually there's and not to say all of it's right or all of it's wrong, but there might be something in there that you don't understand the context of, as I said, well, as you said, sorry, um, boxing coaches might not be using, for example, dumbbell punches to build power. They might be using it for shoulder endurance. Now, whether that's the right tool for the job or whether shoulder endurance should be something they're even focusing on, it's very easy to be like, well, I'm an S&C coach. I know, right, your 30 years in (laughs) boxing is somehow irrelevant to my one year. It's funny. It's funny because educated S&C coaches will say, oh, the line of force with the dumbbells is not correct. It's vertical. And then they'll put the boxer um, on a battle rope in- interval. Right? It's like... Yeah. It's not as specific anyways. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, and another example of that is, um, for example, you, I mean, I think I spoke in my review of your book how people swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. So it's either mm-hmm. everyone squat, hinge, push, pull, leave the technical coach to do any technical improvements or has to be yeah. specific. If it's not specific, why are we doing it? Um, but you'll get people who are like, Oh no, we can't possibly um, do something like machine work. Cause it's quote unquote, not functional and it's not a multi-joint movement yet. They'll do side planks and Nordics. And you're like, well, that's kind of, you know, single joint movement there's no movement or for example it's just the eccentric phase and you're like well there's several examples yeah. where snc coaches contradict themselves or they'll say oh it's about movement not muscles but then you'll for example do something like a nordic and be like well your feet aren't attached to the floor in a nordic 
and yet you're saying the feet have to be attached to the floor for it to be quote unquote functional. Um, but there's many contradictions that do make me chuckle. Yeah, I think that's the problem with our field in general. We never know what impact we, we made because you could have done the best training program possible and the athlete could have lost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's really hard to say what we've done and what we haven't done. Some athletes kind of achieve great results despite of what their SNC coach is doing or despite of what bad skills training protocols they're doing. Yeah. And as you said, skilled work counts for a lot. I mean, I'm thinking of two specific cricketers that were um, based at the cricket club that I work with. One of them by his own mm-hmm. accounts was uh, physiologically poor, didn't live the life uh, and yet, terrible mobility terrible strength uh never got injured great athlete <laughs> uh, yeah, never got injured and then exactly. there was lads who lived in the gym brilliant mobility took care of sleep took care of all the outside stresses and yet kept picking up tweaks and you're like unfortunately it'd be great if we said oh we'll just get you in the right strength and conditioning program and you'll never get injured and your sports practice will improve but it just never it's never as black and white as that yeah, that's what I realized after my um, my year in Bangkok. Like, I've seen all these Thai fighters do none of the modern SNC techniques that are supposed to be done to improve performance. Yet, like, they're such good athletes. They're so skilled. And there there are obviously some things that they should be doing to, midi- to maybe mitigate injury risk and whatnot. But... Like, as as I said in the book, I don't think as SSC coaches, we're going to come in and overhaul everything. We're such a small piece in the puzzle, especially for combat sports. And that was the premise of the whole ebook. Like, I don't want really green SNC coaches to come in, like, think everything is physiological. Everything has to make sense from their point of view. They're going to discount old training methods because, oh, it doesn't make sense based on what our textbooks say. And if it was all physiological, I challenge any S&C coaches who's listening to this to design their own training program for martial arts and then dominate and see how far you get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like, just... if you want to get into a very physiological sport as an S&C coach, you should get into things like powerlifting, maybe weightlifting, uh, cycling. Like, you're going to have a great time there. Everything yeah. is set reps, volume. Yeah. And even then from personal experience, I, I think um, all SNC coaches should be pursuing some form of skill development, whether it's powerlifting, yeah. whether it's martial arts, because I've learned more in competing in powerlifting than I've learned in, for example, um, I don't know, certain courses or CPDs I've done. And even in something mm-hmm. like powerlifting where the variables are so small, it's a closed skill sport. And yet if, everything worked the way textbook said it would i would peak every single meet because oh it's just a case of bring the volume down bring the intensity up and you know kicking's the hardest right it's so hard to time absolutely absolutely and uh just in wrapping up if you were to give mm-hmm. one key take home for the listeners of this podcast what would it be in relation to my ebook uh, it can be whatever you want if you want to go down the ebook route if you want to go down what we've talked about anything you want mm. For SNC coaches, have some skin in the game. Go watch your athletes play the sport, especially combat sports. Um, try some classes for yourself. Try some wrestling classes. Try some boxing classes. Uh, get punched in the face a few times. 
and and then talk to your athletes <laughs> yeah superb superb <laughs> and uh one i mean i i would happily recommend uh your ebook to anyone listening um a lot of the concepts we've spoken about are in there in um a lot of detail that we've spoken about but if you were to recommend uh, another resource what would it be um aside from your podcast no <laughs> no it's uh the strength training manual volumes one and two by mladen uh from complementary training i think a lot of people have spoken highly about that book and i'm pretty much finished it uh i'll give a review soon but it's really good because it touches on the philosophical side of training which is what training is all about right it's a science and there's always going to be a philosophy behind science and then it goes into pragmatic methods like okay here are the rep and set uh progressions that you can use uh there's like well, i don't know like a thousand in there it's crazy but overall it's a great book for most snc coaches because it's, it's going to get you thinking it's going to make you contextualize everything and really resourceful and i, I must say i do really enjoy books where because i think it's so easy to think that strength and conditioning is unique to itself, but even the barbell strategy, as we've spoken about, that comes from finance, but works in the world of strength and conditioning. So I like yep. books. I like books that go beyond just strength and conditioning or sets and reps or tell you, look, this principle in strength and conditioning also true in finance, business, marketing, etc. Yeah, because a lot of what we do is weighing risks and benefits, especially if we're working with athletes in combat sports where so much is on the line um it's all about decision making at the end of the day absolutely and obviously i'm not telling you to skip your physiological studies like you got to know the basics you got to learn how to squat how to deadlift how to teach those movements um, how to teach any movement for that matter you got to learn your energy systems but to put it together you need some form of system and that's why i wrote the book yeah. And, and as I said, absolute superb. And where can people, I'll obviously put this in the show notes, but where can mm -hmm. people purchase a copy of the book? Uh, my website. So www.gcperformancetraining.com. Um, I have a shop there. Uh, you can, it's a PDF for, format. So I'll go uh, ahead and buy it. As I said, I'll link that in the link that in the show notes. And finally, if people want to get hold of yourself. Sounds good. Best way is through my website or through Instagram. So Instagram is at GCP training. And then my website is gcperformancetraining.com. Awesome. Um, I will say my goodbyes offline, but uh, just while we're on air, thank you very much for giving up your time on a Saturday afternoon, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Todd. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to episode number 28 of the platform to perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson and today's guest, Jeffrey Chu. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you could find the time to leave a review and share it with coaches, teachers, combat athletes, and anyone you believe who would benefit from listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, then head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In exchange for supporting the podcast, you'll receive educational strength and conditioning content exclusive to my Patreon, which includes... Uh, my locked and loaded mobility package, which helps you develop mobility using load and breaks this down piece by piece so you can pick out which part of the body that you want to get longer and stronger. 
uh, as well as my conditioning programs that I've written, the calisthenics le kids lessons that I've delivered, and my technique Tuesday analysis, where I break down uh, a person's movement technique, whether it's calisthenics related, weightlifting related, or indeed uh, related to their sporting movement, and provide feedback for how you can improve. As I said, if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review via your preferred platform, and I'll catch you in the next episode with Erica Suter, where we discuss uh, football-specific considerations for the youth female soccer athlete. Thank you very much, and I will catch you again in the next episode.